You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. Visiting Max's Island today, I've got Laura M. Laura, welcome to the island. Thank you. Great to be here. Laura, all of those who get to visit the island have the opportunity to tell a story of that time in their life where something happened, something that was a little bit different, something that maybe went against community norms or against the grain, or perhaps went against what others thought. Have you got a time in your life where something like that happened to you? Uh, I think the problem is is that I don't have an example of when it, that wasn't the case. I think I've been, <laughs> um, I've been living a little bit alternatively since before I knew what that was. <laughs> so a little bit different. But I think one of the ways that we live our life that seems of interest to most people is that we are a homeschooling family and my children have never been to school, ever. Now, firstly, I need to ask, did you go to school? I did, actually. I went to kinder and, you know, preschool, primary school, high school, university, I mean, and TAFE. I've kind of, uh, and various colleges, basically anywhere there is to study, I've studied. So the inspiration to homeschool your children, where did that come from? So my oldest is nearly 18 and... When she was born, we followed a kind of a, a, a philosophy called attachment parenting. Well, that was the plan anyway. I had read some books back in those days. It was mostly all real, real books because the internet wasn't what it is today. And so we had a home birth. Well, we were planning to have a home birth, but she had a bit of a tricky birth, and I think that tricky birth led to some allergies, some quite a lot of allergies. I think um, at, the, at its peak she had about 12 anaphylactic food allergens, so there were a lot of foods that caused a lot of trouble, and it kind of resulted in a, an isolated young life for her. Like we, we grandparents or anyone visiting couldn't give her grandparents couldn't give her a kiss if they'd had a coffee had milk in their coffee that day for example right so if <laughs> so everyone had to wash their face wash their rinse out their mouths wash their hands we were a very strictly 
dairy-free house for eight years and eggs for nine years and still now nuts. We don't have nuts in the house. So that was when it was time for her to go to, well, we went to a, we went to play group when she was little and she instantly broke out in hives. So that was the end of that. We, we lasted, I don't know, five minutes. <laughs> we couldn't play at friends' houses because it was too hard. It was too hard and too dangerous for them to clear the decks of, of things. And so by the time it was time to go to school, it was just not realistic to send her into a space where there were other kids eating other foods, as simple as that. So the decision was made to homeschool from that. Did that mean you had to give up a career? So I was working before um, I had kids and I don't know that I would have gone back to work straight away anyway. The cost of childcare versus what I was earning at the time didn't make it worthwhile. And we were in a position to be able to afford to live off my husband's wage, basically. And that kind of was the clincher, basically. <laughs> it was like, okay, this is my job now. And it's a really hard thing to reconcile because I'd, I've been working since the age of 13. Like as soon as I could, was old enough to have a job. I had a, always had at least one job. All the way through high school and uni, I had at least three or four jobs on the go at the same time. So not working was a really big deal. <laughs> so entering the career of a homeschooling parent, what preparation did you do? Well, I tried to do a lot. I, in those days, like in the beginning, I was so terrified. <laughs> like, like, oh, my gosh what am I doing? Am I able to do this? This is, how do I do this? And so I read a lot. I reached out to a lot of, um, surprisingly, there are, there are always homeschool groups everywhere you go. Like people don't know that, but there are homeschool groups everywhere. <laughs> and, so, um, and so I found some of those and I met some people and made some friends and yeah, so even it's funny, it's funny because of the situation. So even though maybe the kids weren't friends, I was friends with the with the parents and and still have very close and strong relationships with a lot of these homeschool <laughs> families from from back then. But yeah, I don't know. I think we just fumbled our way through, just kind of did what we could do. And early on, there was a talk, a TED talk back in the day when TED Talks were kind of like really exciting and new. Uh, there was a TED Talk by Sir uh, Ken Robinson, is that his name, I think? Yep. And that was pretty much it. I heard that and I was like, ah, okay, we're, we're going to be okay. It's going to be fine. <laughs> um, and so after that I relaxed a lot and then any time I felt nervous I just listened to that talk again. <laughs> so that, yep. was, that was the early years. So the network helped you with not only sounds like your confidence to embark on it. Also, was that did that expose you to resources that made it useful? Um, sort of. So the we lived in Melbourne back then, and I don't know that there were resources really. Like it was me going to Office Works and buying books, or when Aldi had that would have the 
you know, those workbook sales, I would go and buy, you know, every single one. <laughs> um, we had boxes and boxes of workbooks and worksheets and all sorts of things like that. And no one ever did a single page of any of them. That's that's the truth. I have probably still got boxes and boxes of these bloody books in storage and they're all completely brand new, untouched. <laughs> because um, what I eventually gave up on was that my kids don't do worksheets and they don't do workbooks. Because they've never been in school, they would be like, yeah, but why? Like, why are we doing this? This doesn't even make sense. And I eventually realised, of course it doesn't make sense. Like, of course it doesn't make sense. Why are we sitting here <laughs> doing worksheets and workbooks when we could be out in the world doing real things um, in real life? So That's really interesting I'm, because that is a, a construct that if you go to school, you yeah. conform to. The, yeah, the, you the don't even question it. No, the, the <laughs> discipline of learning and, and recording that learning in, yeah. in a workbook and reflecting yeah. on it. So yeah, yeah, it's you interesting. Don't, you don't even, I didn't even question it. And I think that the biggest part of becoming a homeschooling family or a home, home educating family, because we really don't do school at home, is letting go of my stuff. That's, that's the hardest part is letting go of like, yeah, but that's not how I did it. Just let that go because... Of course, it's you know, it's uh, they've never been to school. They don't know what it's like to have to sit there and wait until you know someone else has finished something else so that the whole class can move on. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> Everyone moves at their own speed always, and so yeah, it's a really tricky adjustment. Having said that, what sort of disciplines, from a point of view of regularity and time length and timelines did you adopt and or did you not adopt that and what did you find that worked for your children um we do a lot of kind of experiential things so you know we, we go places we do things but the holy grail of pretty much any homeschooler that is homeschooled from the get-go like I'm not talking about people who have had their kids in school and pulled them out because that's not the same it's not the same kettle of fish at all. So families who whose kids have never been to school, and there's some of this, you know, there's a few of us around, but not many. But the holy grail is can your kid read? <laughs> and that's kind of it. <laughs> so getting your kids to the point of reading is the magic. And now that I and I have four children and I've done it and I've experienced this four times. And what I wonder a lot is do parents realise how their kids learn to read? I think parents think they go to school and they learn to read at school, but I don't reckon that's true at all. So I think that the building blocks to learning to read happen in really interesting ways. And for some kids it takes a really long time and some kids it's really fast. Some kids, two of my kids were, were reading by the age of three and a half and four, and one of them was nearly nine and the other one was about seven. And the way that they learn is really, really different. And the ones that took the longest were the ones who had the most formal school-like approach to learning to read. <laughs> Sorry, that was like a lot of thought all in one. <laughs> Your reference to reading is quite interesting because 
it makes sense that a lot of children are exposed to the fundamentals of reading well before they get into the formal discipline of school. So it makes sense that there's opportunities in a homeschooling environment to accelerate that in some occasion in, in, in some cases and introduce that really early. So you said that's the holy grail. Is that simply so that a child is is literate in communicating, in understanding and communicating, and from there all the other experiential learnings uh, are added value? From my point of view, yes. Like I want them to read because the world opens up to you when you can read. But really and practically and honestly, it's because as soon as your kids can read, a lot of a lot of the naysayers just back off. <laughs> They'll let you be. <laughs> so um, that's, I think, a really big part of it too. You mentioned you've got four children and yep. obviously all individuals. One of the benefits of homeschooling is the I guess the one-on-one -on -one element and the ability to, uh, for you as a parent to identify their differences and be able to cater for that, which is often something that is suggested is lost in a, in a more formal setting of, you know, class numbers of 30 where a teacher needs to get through a particular curriculum at a particular speed. So therefore there's a, an, an averaging uh, that may occur. But did you have any challenges with any one of the four children that meant that you had to change your techniques as you went along? Oh, definitely. So, so we are a neurodiverse and neurodivergent family. Pretty much everyone is autistic. A few of us are ADHD. We've got some dyspraxics. Dys so dyscalculia is an issue. So yeah, all sorts of learning issues are part of the are part of the mix and. The funny thing is that I didn't know about any of those, we didn't get those formal diagnoses until we were quite a way through. So I had already kind of like found workarounds to the issues without knowing what the, with, now, without knowing the name of the issue exactly. We were like, well, you know, this kid is a really visual and, and kinetic learner. That's clear. So let's just work with that one one of the kids has a really poor short-term memory it's all linked in with some of the other diagnoses so every day was like learning that learning for the first time so when we were learning when he was learning to read every day we would do whatever like read a book or do sounds or whatever it was and it was like it was the first time he'd ever seen or heard or those sorts of things. So it took a really long time. Once it clicked, it clicked. But in a school setting, that would have been a disaster. Like I, I can't even imagine what would have what happens to kids like that in the school setting. Actually, I know I, I can imagine, and I completely know what happens. They um, they fall behind. They deal with a lot of shame. I'm imagining probably some bullying. They would act up. There's frustrations. There's all these big emotions. Like when you're six and seven, and you're dealing with like these big feelings and perhaps the teacher is not equipped to go slow or give that time or no one's paying enough attention to realise these things. Like what happens to those kids? So anyway, I've managed to get through that with a kid with self-confidence up the wazoo. So <laughs> that's the upside and that's what happens when you can spend that time I guess and see the bigger picture and go slow and we're not in a rush and we're not doing school at home like there was no pressure from me to like I said no workbooks were done no worksheets were touched um, but 
we still kind of got there in the end because we just found the ways that they learned and we went with that. Are there any benchmarks from an educational point of view that you need to achieve or, or if you're homeschooling, you know, you can do what you like or do you have to report back to the education department or some other authority to say that this well, is what I'm doing with my children and this is sort yeah. of the levels that they've achieved? Yeah, so it's a very timely question because, um, yes, is the answer. So when you register, you don't have to, look, you don't have to register as a homeschooling family. We we are. And so because we are registered, we have to answer to a moderator. So the moderator, in our case, is generally only once a year. It's one meeting a year. And if the moderator is happy with what, what they see, you get a you get the boxes ticked. They write a report that they then send off to the education department, um, and we get a copy of it. And that report highlights the improvements that that have happened during the year, the experiences that have happened during the year. Yeah, so it's timely because our our moderator appointment is next week, and uh, normally it's in January February. So I I really was not expecting. <laughs> expecting it to be next week so she um, I, I got a call a few days ago which sent the whole family into a tailspin because all and it's like well she wants samples of um, writing and samples of maths and, and that's fine like we can pull that together that's not a it's not a problem but it sent everyone into a into a spin because it was like well how do we show like what are we going to write this week to show we've improved from last year and that was kind of like the tiz that I got into then the kids you know fell into as well and then when I had a minute to think about it and calm down (laughs) um, I was like you know the problem here is that they've asked the wrong question she's asked me the wrong question she's asking me to show improvements in English and not even in English in writing in writing and math, that's it. She said the rest, she doesn't need examples of just an overview of, of what we've done for the year. And I'm like, the writing in math is the very, very least interesting thing that we have done in this past year. When I think about the ridiculous amount of things that we have accomplished, seen, done, travelled to, met people like we have done so much stuff that me making the kids write an essay (laughs) is so not in any way an adequate way to uh, sum up what they are capable of or what we have done this year and in no way is it a measure of them in any capacity and it's so disappointing to me it's so disappointing to me but also probably why we you know, don't do school <laughs> anymore. <laughs> so you've on a couple of occasions around experiences and really early on you, you talked about that a, a lot of the learning is outside of what you would deem a formal classroom setting. What are some of the things that you do that really resonate with the children and you've seen this engagement to learn about something through experience so yesterday 
we went to the Telstra Museum here in Brisbane. We went to the Telstra Museum because we happened to drive past and see that the, a Telstra Museum existed. So we went to the Telstra Museum. The Telstra Museum is staffed by ex-Telstra engineers, basically. Bunch of old guys loving their nerdy engineer life, just waiting for someone to come in so they can tell all their stories to. <laughs> so that's what happened. So yesterday we did the a tour through the museum. We learned about everything from the 1840s um, through to through to modern times. So we we learned all of the you know, like how phones work, how phones used to work, how phones work now, how exchanges work. We got to send telegrams. We got to do all of that, you know, use a rotary phone. My, my youngest didn't know how to even put the old phones to her ear and her mouth, didn't know which way it went, didn't know what to do with the cord, didn't know how to use a rotary, <laughs> a rotary phone. So all of those experiences happened. But this guy, he told us stories about... You know, on the $20 note, there's the face on the $20, $20 note is the guy who who started the Flying Doctors. But we got the story about what happened in the lead-up to him invent, like starting the Flying Doctors, which was basically um, an exchange in Western Australia. So there was a doctor in Perth and there was a postmaster in Halls Creek who, via Morse code, performed surgery to save a guy did as much as they could. The doctor left immediately. It took two weeks for this doctor to get to this patient and the patient died a day before he got there. So we learned some history. We learned about Morse code. We learned about the Royal Flying Doctors. We learned about people in history. We learned about the women who were trained, you know, to work in the post office, the local post office. We learned all of this stuff. So, and that was in an hour. That was in one hour. And that was just yesterday on on Monday. So we're a bit, uh, we love ships and we love planes. So anytime there's a cool ship around or a cool plane, we will like make endeavours to go see it. So there was a, a couple of fighter jets doing a, a touch and go approach at Archerfield Airport. Well, not a very usual thing. So these are two, I think they're F-35 Lightning jets. They came in, they approached the runway nearly landed and then took back off. So they came in super low, super loud, super fast. And we knew it was happening at 2.30. So we got there and there was a small crowd. All the fly boys and fly girls, all the cadets from the, the neighbouring um, air, air schools, like flight schools were out, all the engineers, all the people working on planes were all there. We got to meet and talk to all sorts of people who work on planes, love planes, and then see these planes. And, you know, that's just part of the things we've done this this week. That's only this week. <laughs> Obviously, the, my passion around storytelling and the, the reason for this podcast is to get the experiences of individuals that not only is an interesting story, but talks about, you know, the meaning of doing things and the feelings that you get from doing things. So just what you've said there is, an example of that, that people who are passionate about a particular area, often it's just about finding them, engaging with them, and they will then happily tell you everything about a particular subject, about a particular instance or a particular situation. So it is a fascinating way of learning. I think it's a 
really insightful way of learning. And by you homeschooling, I guess you have the opportunity to go looking for that far more easily than a teacher who has 30 children, who has work safe liabilities to consider and parent parent student ratios and all of those Mm -hmm. sorts of things. And that perhaps restricts some of the opportunities to be exposed to those sort of environments. So I can understand how you being having that flexibility would be a massive advantage for your children to be exposed to things that they may not normally get to see. Oh, absolutely. And it's not a it's not a uh, privilege I take lightly because I know that not everyone is in a position to do what we are doing. And and it's why I I take it very seriously, not just because it's my children and there's nothing I care about more, but because if we're doing this, we're really going to do this. And I'm not, uh, you know, if we can go and live in Brisbane for a few months and go and do Brisbane things, well, let's go, let's work the budget, let's make a plan, let's go do that and and just do it all because you know, there, there, are, there are interesting places and interesting things everywhere, obviously, but if we can travel around a little bit and see more things and <clears throat> have more access, more opportunities, you just don't know what you're going to come across. We were in Canberra. It just happened to be Parliament House Open Day <laughs> and they changed the flag, the big flag on the top of the mast. So that flag, if people haven't seen it is the size of the side of a double-decker bus. That's how big it is. And we got to hold the new flag. <laughs> they stretch it out. All the kids got to hold it. Someone, I don't know, blessed it. I think there was some sort of ceremony. I don't know if the blessing is the right term. Um, but they got to hold the flag and then it was folded up and put in a bag. We got to watch the um, the people go up a very tricky a carriage that goes up into the top of the flag. It's like a little, I don't know, they have to lie down and it, it drags them up the flagpole and then they they pull down the old flag and put up the new flag. So we got to see all of those things, touch the flag. That was pretty cool. We got to meet the curator of the all the art in, the, in Parliament House and have a chat to her. And that was really interesting as well because... There's a lot of amazing art in Parliament House and the curator is not often just walking the walking the halls of Parliament House. So just things like that. So when I find someone, I tend to grab a hold of them and make them tell me something. <laughs> How are children going in connecting with others outside of your family environment and do they actively involved in other elements of the community that they may normally would have been driven by a school environment? I think I mentioned they, they really have a lot of confidence. They're, they're very self-confident. They're very articulate. They're not bound by the idea that friends need to be uh, the same age and live in the same suburb as you. You know, that that's they have friends all over the country because we get around <laughs> a lot. <laughs> They've done, you know, music lessons and sports and um, all of those and art lessons and those sorts of things. So they make friends doing those regular activities as well. But one of the things that always surprises me is if we're at a 
fun. We were at Floriade and my son saw that there were volunteers handing out paint. I think it was handing out paint to paint garden gnomes and they were a bit short-staffed. And he just went and said, would you like some help? I'm happy to help. <laughs> so these were, it was run, it was an activity run by Rotary and they were like, oh, fabulous. These were, you know, so they were Rotarians, so they were of an age, not expecting a teenager to rock up and say, hey, do you want a hand? They gave him a, an apron and away he went. <laughs> and they, you know, invited him back and said anytime. And, yeah, it happens a lot that they'll just say, hey, do you need a hand? And they'll just pitch in and get, get to work. <laughs> so that's, yeah. So that suggests to me that, their emotional intelligence hasn't been at all hindered by being homeschooled. And in fact, it sounds like their level of self-confidence and independence has probably meant their emotional intelligence is very intuitive to them and is very valuable in them connecting outside uh, with other people. I, I think so. Yeah. It's certainly something that I have worked with them on kind of understanding emotions. I, I don't, you know, maybe it's part of the the neurodiverse aspect of our family that we talk about emotions a lot. We talk about why people do things, why people react like that, why we feel the way we feel in different, you know, different situations, different circumstances. So we have always, I've always done that from they were very little, named the, you know, this feeling is this and so I would say yes, there's there's certainly some emotional intelligence there, but we've worked on it. It, it didn't just accidentally happen. <laughs> so, yeah. And I guess one of my final questions would be, what are your thoughts, and, and I think your older children are getting toward their later teenage years, so what are your thoughts about their preparation for further education or the workforce? And what's the expectations? And, and do they have goals around that? Yeah, they do. They do. Well, one of them's still a little bit young, but is you know has a goal. So we're working. We're just building up to that. Um, and the other is kind of about to about to step into that kind of next phase. So it'll be the first real full time school like venture for her. And the secret is that it's really easy to get into university without going to school. That's that's the truth. That's <laughs> and I think people don't often know it or believe it or you know, but it's really really easy to get into uni. Uni universities at the end of the day are businesses and they want your money. At the end. So once I learned that many many years ago. I relaxed a lot because the, the world is their oyster and they can kind of do whatever, <laughs> whatever they are capable of doing and want to do. It's it's all possible and it doesn't all need to happen the minute they turn 18 is the other thing. So, yeah, that's my message for them. And the other thing is that I'm like of the opinion that in this modern world, one career, one skill is unlikely to serve you for your working career. So really what you need to plan is 
a skill that you can use for a certain amount of time that will get you to wherever you want to go, that will give you a lifestyle that you want to, you know, have and and go from there. So, you know, my night owl, well, you know what, there's heaps of jobs you can do that will suit that kind of thing. You know, you don't have to. And and, and that's what we work. She's very creative. She's um, so those, you know, we work with that. My other son wants to go more into a medical a medical career so that's a different kettle of fish so we're working on the things he will need to to get that to happen and the other two are too young to I don't even let them worry about it it's not important to worry about those things yeah so no I don't they're I think they're fine I think they'll be fine and that they'll get where they need to be when they need to be there <laughs> Laura I think that's a great place to finish your visit to Max's Island been a really interesting story of why you went down this path but the most important thing for me has been the way that you've intuitively embraced it obviously learned from it had the great opportunity to to actually do it with four of your children which meant that there's been probably significant changes in your thinking and the the opportunity to be very specific with each one of them and I think you should be very comfortable in knowing that when they do all get to the age of being able to make the next decisions around their, their next stage of their life, that they're going to be fully equipped in a way that is very bespoke to them, very personal to them, which I think is a really important thing in this day and age. And as you said, often it's not about the skills you can learn, but it's the, the skills that you acquire through the experiences of life. And they're the ones that perhaps allow you to to achieve so thanks for being on max's island we really enjoyed your visit thank you thanks for having me we spoke on the bus on the way home from work he was lost in the details of life each day was a blur oh work and no play and how how it had turned out this way Short-term escape, five weeks on the Bibbulmun track Go it alone, no one to blame If he finished or fell by the way No one's an island, but sometimes it's good to pretend
Every sense was engaged, his mind was as clear as the sky. Completely alone, no emails or phone and nothing, nothing he needed to do. Sometimes.